I'm going to go ahead and jump right into it just so we have enough time. Uh, if, if you're new here, we usually preach till about 1.30. We take an intermission and then we go to about 3. Uh, everybody, I'm glad everybody knew that was a joke this morning. You guys are in tune. I, I mean, it's good. We won't, we won't keep you that long. Uh, but, uh, but I'm going to go ahead and get started since we've got the baby dedication this morning. But I want to speak very specifically in line with what's going on this morning about our children. I want to talk about living for, for legacy, living for legacy. Uh, but if you would, if you, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Ephesians 5 if you'd like to. I'll be starting out of Ephesians 5. And, uh, but if you would, while you're turning there, why don't we just have a word of prayer real quick and, uh, and just call upon the Lord. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for what you're doing in our midst, God. We thank you for the children and, and the babies and just the life that you've given us, the healthy families, God, that you've given us. And, and we're just grateful to be able to gather again this morning in your name, Lord God. And we just ask for your Holy Spirit, God, to open our hearts and our minds to receive your word and to be changed and transformed by it, God. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Listen, God has blessed us as a church. I don't know if you realize this or not. Like I, I've been going to church now for, you know, about maybe off and on my whole life, really. Uh, but, but, but I mean, I became a, a Christian where I really decided I was going to follow Jesus for real when I was about 20 or 21 years old, right in that season in my life. And, uh, and you know, and now and I'm coming up on the ripe age of 34. And, and every church I've been in before, I've always been the young dude. But now I got people that, have, that call me old. The other day, somebody said, man, you can't really speak to the youth, Clay. You're a little bit too old. I was like, man, what's going on? This is a different kind of a church. There's, we, we've got families. We've got a lot of young people. And there's something that the Lord is doing. But one of the things, like in a lot of our conversations here recently, uh, you know, the things that we talk about as men and women with, with a lot of babies that are coming in, you can't imagine how many babies. We're having to open up right now a new infant room. We used to have a nursery, and now we've got too many kids in the nursery, so we've got to split it into infant and then nursery. And that's a good problem to have, isn't it? I mean, like I said, we're growing to church the old-fashioned way. I told somebody, I said, I was going to mandate marital celibacy here in just a minute. Somebody said, this is a cult. we got to get out of here right now. No, I'm joking, but, but the point is, God is doing something in our midst. But see, when God thinks about what He wants to do in a community, He thinks generationally. He's not just thinking about what He can do through you in the here and now. He's thinking about what He can do through you in the here and now that will impact the generations to come. And we're talking about living for a legacy. We're talking about when I'm dead and gone and what, what's going to happen to the generation that comes after me. What will we have left behind us? That's what we mean when we're talking about li living for legacy. And see, when I was younger, listen, i got to be honest with you, I thought like I had most things figured out. I remember when I was about 21, 22, I'd gotten saved and was really, you know, the Lord was doing something in my life. And, and I remember talking to my dad one day and, and you get to the point, you know, life is strange. You, you start out young. We got a lot of 20 year olds and stuff, people in college, man, that's when you're at your smartest, folks. When you're 20 years old, you're the smartest you'll ever be. No doubt about it. You think you've got it figured out and you think you're good at stuff and then all of a sudden life, you know, you got to get a job, you got to hold that down, you got to pay bills, responsibilities come on. Then you marry a wife, you figure out, man, I'm not as holy as I thought I was. Like she's revealing some things in me that aren't as good as I thought. And then all of a sudden you have a kid and then you got to run an organization and then all these things are stacked up on you and when you have responsibilities, see that's what my dad said to me. He laughed at me one time. I remember it's very vivid in my imagination. I was talking to him the other day about it and he said, son, just wait till you get some responsibilities. 
And I was like, Dad, I got this thing figured out. I got this thing covered. But then you get responsibilities and you start to think about things. But the thoughts that I've been having recently, what I'm going to share with you, because I get it, I understand. I'm going to get up here today. I'm going to talk a little bit about what it means to be the head of your household, to lead your family, what Scripture says about, about parenting to some degree. And listen, I got a lot of experience. I've been a parent for two months now. You know what I'm saying? Like, I can give you some tips, y'all. I know how to keep a baby from spitting up now. You can't lay them flat on their back, y'all, especially right after they get done eating. You got to keep them a little bit inverted, you know what I'm saying? Like, so I got a lot of experience that I'm going to... And my point here is not to say that I have this thing figured out is the point that I'm making. The guys and the men that I'm growing with right now spiritually, it's not me above them, it's us together. We're figuring this thing out together. You and I, we're figuring this thing out together. But I, here's what the Lord has been speaking to me specifically. I want to give you seven things this morning, right? More points than a porcupine, as Donald says. But I want to give you seven things this morning that the Lord has been speaking to me about living for legacy. But let's begin in Ephesians, um, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23 through 26. Here's what it says. And i got to be honest with you, you got to get ready for this. Give me some time to develop this, okay? For the, for the husband is head. Now, there is the reason, a reason that I've highlighted that, and some of you women are like, I'm going to get up and leave right now. <laughs> for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Now, what he starts out by saying, and I want to open this up, but what he starts out by saying is that the husband is the head. Now, if you are, if somebody's running an organization, ultimately, if something goes wrong in an organization, if something goes wrong on a sports team, who is ultimately responsible for what goes wrong in that organization? The head is, the president, the CEO, the manager, the one that's at the top. If a team is going south, right? If the UK basketball team is going south, who's everybody calling out? Coach Cal, man, he ain't worth a dime. Like Everybody's going to the top to figure out the leader. And responsibility, man, sometimes when it comes on a man, they get a little bit nervous about what they're going through. I remember when Donald and I were making the transition, one of the things that I didn't want was I didn't want to carry the load of the responsibility for this church. Because I thought to myself in the back of my mind, I'm just being transparent and honest, if everything were to crumble, at least I can blame it on Donald. <laughs> Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like when the responsibility transfers and the weight is on your shoulders and what's going on in, in, in your organization or what's going on in what you're leading or what's going on with your sports team or whatever, and even more so with what's going on in your household. See, because God has put things in order, and when something is going on in the household, who does He ultimately re hold responsible? He holds the man responsible. Now, it's not to say that the, the women don't have a responsibility. It's not to say that they don't have an authority, but there is, a, there is a design that God has given, and I want you to hang with me as I break this down, because I talked to several people this week. I even asked some women some questions. I'm like, when I read these scriptures, what's your first response to it? And most, most women had a very good response to it. They're not so much like, no, the man ain't the head of the household. I'm the head of the household. Like, anybody know those kind of women, right? Don't marry one. <laughs> Amen. All right. It's going to go good this morning, right? So, everything's going to be good. So, 
If things aren't going well in our home, who is the head? That now, when you think about the head, he says, as Christ is the head of the church, as He is the Savior of the body. A body only functions properly when the head is in good shape. If something is going wrong in the wiring in the head, the body begins to malfunction. And so the same in the household, when the head is not functioning properly, leading properly, things begin to break down in the household and you start to see the effects of those things that are going on. But let me, let me just show you this. Here's what I believe. I believe that there's been an attack on men as leaders for years and years. And you're starting to see this manifest in the church and in our society. Let me give you some stats that I came across here recently. Now notice this, because men are supposed to be the head, but here's what you see, and, and, and here's, here's one of the stats. When a mother comes to Christ, I want you to pay attention to this. When a mother comes to Christ, her family will join her at church only 17% of the time. But when a father comes to Christ, his family joins him 93% of the time. Why is that? It's by design. A family will more likely follow the father than they will follow the mother. It's just, it's just by design. Again, women, I'm, I'm about, you're going to like what I've got to say. Just give me a minute. Just give me a minute. This is just a reality. The typical U.S. congregation draws an adult crowd that's 61% female, 39% male. That means that women are in church and men are not. This gender gap shows up in all age categories. On any given Sunday, there are 13 million more adult women than men in America's churches. 93% of all incarcerated people are male. 85% of them have no father figure. It's impacted their life. Something's went on. Women, notice this. Let me, now here's where I'm going to pat women on the back. Women are 100% more likely to be involved in discipleship. They're 57% more likely to hold a leadership position in the church. 54% more likely to participate in a small group. 39% more likely to have a regular devotional time. 33% more likely to volunteer. And 29% more likely to attend church, read their Bible, and share their faith. They're 16% more likely to pray than men. And let me tell you this, and I, saw, I thought, man, this surely can't be real. But here's what I've noticed over the years is that the truth be told, you know what this church runs on? Women, son. They get in there and they grind, they take care of the kids, they greet, they run organizations, they do it. And I rely on them. I'm like, listen, I'm handing them, I'm delegating them responsibility because they're ready to run with it. Men, on the other hand, they have this tendency to be a little bit more passive, a little bit more apathetic, a little bit more, I don't know about that. I'd rather be out eating a squirrel liver somewhere, you know, and shooting ducks or something like that. Like, I mean, men are, just, men are just different and they're wired differently. But we have to take this into account because it is a reality. Even when we had small group signups recently, right? In our church, guess what percentage of small group signups were male? 25%, 75% women. So I thought even in our church, it's, the reality is there. So the call is this, and here's what I'm starting this out, is that the call is this, is that men, you've got to understand what God, God has called you to do as the head of your household before, this, before we can ever live for a legacy. The man has to understand that he can't, he can't designate all of his responsibilities over to his wife to make sure she's leading the home and the children are spiritually, physically, and emotionally nourished and fed just because the wife is taking control of it. Men have a responsibility, and this is what God has been dealing with me about because he says, Clay, you have a tendency when the pressure gets put on to want to withdraw, to want to be apathetic, to want to be non-confrontational. And you've got to understand that I have called you to not only lead this church, but to lead your household. 
to lead the people in your life to make sure that you're taking responsibility for what I've put in your life. So number one, point number one is you've got to lead your home and you've got to love your spouse. By the way, it's my baby's uh, birthday today. Somebody say amen. Yeah, happy birthday. I got the best wife in the world, y'all. She's easy to love. But you know, we have, we have, we have conversations like honest last night. We had an honest conversation. I was struggling with some things. You know what I'm saying? I, I open up to her and, and, and she shares with me. And sometimes she corrects me. Because when we talk about being subject, so to speak, let me, let me see, if, when he says that the male is the head, what it doesn't mean is that the male is the bully, that the male dominates, that the male tells the woman what to do. I think when men and women read this, and when men read it especially, like sometimes men will joke and they'll be like, yeah, I've got her under subjection. You know what I'm saying? Like, I've got her under subjection. I've heard that a lot. What they actually think is that the man is coming in and saying, listen, woman, I'm about to go fishing, and you, I don't want to hear a word out of you. You're going to stay here. You're going to change the diapers. You're going to make sure the house is clean. And when I come back, you better have me a pie baked. I think that's what men assume that is what this means. And this is the farthest thing from what he's saying when you say that when God says that you're the head of your household. It's the farthest thing because he says you are the head of your household as Christ is the head of the church. Now, if I'm the head of my household as Christ is the head of the church, I've got to think about this very properly because you've got to ask yourself, how did Christ exercise his authority over the church? How did Christ, you know how he exercised his authority? He exercised his authority by first washing their feet and serving them in love. He exercised his authority by feeding them and cooking them breakfast whenever they come off of the land. He exercised his authority by putting himself first in everything. And ultimately, he exercised his authority by laying down his life and saying, I will die in your place so that you might be saved. And so the call is not, hey men, boss your women around. The call is lay down your life like Christ did so that your wife can see an example. And when she sees that example, she can say, I can submit to this because the only thing I'm submitting to is being radically loved and nurtured and cared for. And when she sees that in her life, she says, wow, I'm willing to say, you know what, I'm going to follow where you, need, where you want to go. And it's easy to follow Christ because He's not dominating. He's not domineering. We subject ourselves to Christ because we know He wants what's best for us. That becomes very easy for a woman then to say, man, I think I will follow this guy. I think I'm going to lead because men have got to lead in humility. What this doesn't mean because you're the head of your household is that you are immune or impervious from correction. My wife corrects me a lot. Somebody amen me. Like I need it too though. When the Lord brought me into this relationship with this woman, the thing that I had to understand is that I'm still, I don't know about you, but I'm still in the sanctification process. There's a lot of jacked up stuff still in here. I was sharing with her last night some of my fears, some of my anxieties, some of my personal issues, and she, she just laid it out to me. And you know, how I lead in that moment is not by saying, you don't tell me what, what needs to change. I tell you, I'm the head here. No, how I lead is by saying, honey, you're right. I apologize. You don't deserve that. I shouldn't bring that kind of an attitude. And I lead in humility. I lead in humility by saying, I was wrong. I need to change in that area. And because of that, she says, that's the way that somebody's supposed to lead. You lead in humility, see. This is, this is what I'm learning, y'all. I know, I know you, somebody's like, he's 34 years old. He don't know nothing. What's that kid doing? But the point is, is that the Lord is leading us. He's guiding us into this reality. And some people will say, well, you know, when I grew up, I didn't even really have a dad. We didn't have a, a leader in our household. And, and I, you know, I thought a lot about that because some people think, well, I, I didn't have anything poured into me. And, and it becomes generational, doesn't it? 
When a lot of us, we didn't have good fathers or, or different things like that, somebody that wasn't leading the household, it does become generational. It impacts the next generation, which impacts the next generation. And we even see it in our community here in Clay County. We see drug addiction that is a generational curse and poverty. And there has to be a point where Christ breaks in and He can break into our families and say, enough is enough, you're changing it. You're breaking the cycle. You're moving things along because even if you didn't have a dad, that means nothing. When I grew up, one of my best friends in the world, we grew up, we spent most of our time together. He did not have a father. His, his dad left him when he was two years old, and so he really didn't know him. He didn't meet him and talk to him until he was in college. He was probably about 22, I think, when he actually talked to him for the first time. But we had many conversations because when we first got saved, we're trying to, you know, get healed from our wounds and our past problems and all these issues. And people would talk to him about not, not having a dad. And here's what he would always say. He would say, I, I really, he said, I know you think I should be wounded in that area, but I'm not. And here's why. When I was a kid, my mom raised me and she always told me that God was a father to the fatherless. And every time we needed something, she said, we can ask our dad and he'll tell us. I talked to him this week about it, you know, and he's, he's actually a worship pastor over at another church. But I talked to him this week about it. He said, man, I can remember. He said, I really never had a problem with it because my mom always instilled in me the word of God. See, she took responsibility because she had to. And there are a lot of single mothers out there, and just according to these stats, what we're finding is a lot of men are having to take the responsibility, or a lot of women are having to retake, take the responsibility of the men. And listen, they're doing a great job in a lot of respects. There's a lot of moms out there that are absolutely killing it, being a mom and a dad to, to, to somebody. And we need to support those people who are doing that, and we don't need to shame them because God can do anything. He can take a broken family and say, I will father that child. I will take care of that child. But he said, my mom, he said, my mom always believed it. She didn't get into this pity party. She would not let me get into a pity party. He says, I remember one time I was 10 years old, it was at Christmas, and all of these boys were getting presents from their dad. And he said, I went and cried in the room because I didn't have a dad to give me a present. And he said, my mom walked in there and she said, what are you crying about, son? You dropped those tears. She said, you're not wounded. You've got the best dad in the world. And he's given you everything that you've got. And he said, because of that, she believed what she was saying and God became his father and healed all of his wounds because the word says that he is a father to the followers. And what he told me, he said, if I was going to tell anybody anything that has a broken family, he said, do not embrace the lie that you are of a broken family or, or that you are a broken child or you're a wounded child. Don't embrace that lie, he says, because you have the almighty for a father and you are a child of God. You're a child of God, and you don't have to embrace that lie. You can live out of that new identity. But here's the reality, men. A lot of times what I see is, in, in the beginning, when God created Adam, he put them in what? He put them in a garden. And he said, you, you, listen, Adam, you got to cultivate this. you got to pluck up the roots. you got to plant good seed. you got to water the soil. you got to make sure this garden's growing good stuff. And... Here's the problem is that a lot of men, they get upset because their garden ain't growing anything good. But see, they've not tended it. They've not weeded out anything. They've not nurtured it. They've not watered anything. So when your home is a mess, you got to ask yourself, how come it's a mess? It's because you've not been tending your garden. you got to get in there and plant some seed. you got to nourish your woman. you got to take care of your children. you got to make sure that they're cared for. And when you plant that good seed of the Word of God in prayer and spiritual leadership, all of a sudden, a year down the road, you see that things are changing, that Righteousness is growing up in your home. Holiness is growing up in your home. A desire for God is growing up in your home. The behaviors and the attitudes are changing because you are cultivating your garden in that place. You can't have a bad garden and get aggravated because you got bad fruit when you're not taking care of the garden. 
See, we have a responsibility to take care of the garden. And it all begins in Genesis chapter 3. You remember Genesis chapter 3? I'm going to give you an overview so we don't have to read it. But it all begins there. God creates everything perfect. I mean, He looks at all of it. Man, there's trees everywhere. There's fruit the size of your head. And, And I mean, everything is good. He creates everything perfect. And then He gives Adam, the perfect man, a perfect woman, and she's naked. Every man said, sign me up for that. Like, I'm good. Everything's perfect. The woman comes, everything's good, right? And she comes in and they're cultivating this garden. They're living in absolute perfection. And in the midst of that garden, all of a sudden, I don't know what Adam's doing. I don't know where he's at. But all of a sudden, a serpent creeps into the garden. And he comes in to the garden, into the place that God had given him. And this serpent begins to have a conversation with Eve. Now, Eve could have easily said, listen, serpent, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you're doing here. But we don't listen to people who are contrary to God. We listen to God. That's who we have a relationship with. But it says he was subtle. He was crafty. He began to feed her a lie. He began to say, look, you can be like gods. In other words, you don't really need God. You can begin to make for you the decisions for yourself as to what's good, as to what's evil. And matter of fact, you can become God for yourself. You can do this. And she began to listen to him. And I don't, I don't know what it was. I don't even know why she was listening to him. Here's, here's what I believe. If I read that story, the two things that I noticed right offhand, and I had a conversation with somebody about this this week, but men tend to err on the side of apathy. Amen. If you're like me, it's just like, you know what? I don't want to hear about it. I just want to sit here and chill for a minute. Is that anybody, any man in here? Just like, woman, just please be quiet. Just please give me 15 minutes. I just want to watch TV. I just don't want to live. I just, I, you know, that's, that, men have a tendency toward that. Women, on the other hand, have a tendency toward discontentment. They have a tendency toward discontentment. Why is it that Eve, why is it that Eve is all of a sudden moving over into this place where she's listening to the serpent? Because maybe it is at home. She's like, you know what? I'm just not satisfied with my husband. He ain't quite doing things the way that he should do them. And he's not the head of the household. I can tell you that. All of a sudden they get a little bit of attitude, you know. You know, I wish we had a better car. I wish we had a better house. I wish he made a little bit more money. And she starts pressuring him, saying, Adam, you got to do some more stuff. I mean, this garden, look at it out here. It ain't going to grow itself. I, I don't, I'm just imagining. I'm just imagining. Women don't get mad at me, right? Anybody amen me, right? And so she's discontent, and she goes over in the search, and she's like, yeah, I'm listening. Adam's, God knows who, where. You know, he's probably sitting, he's sitting on, on uh, who knows? Who knows where he's at? But the serpent says, take and eat. And she takes and she eats. And the scripture says she gives to her husband who was with her. Now, and he takes and he eats without asking question. Maybe she nagged him to death. Maybe she said, honey, we got to do this. We got to take this. We got to do this. And here's the thing. She is receiving these demonic lies. And where is Adam? He's not saying anything. He's not doing any, anything. He's nowhere to be found. He, I don't know what he's doing. I don't know if he's cleaning his rifle. I don't know if he's checking his phone. I don't know if he's playing video games in the basement. I don't know if he's drinking bush light with his buddies. I don't know what he's doing, but he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's not protecting his wife. He's not watching his garden. He's not alert and aware. He is apathetic. He's non-confrontational. And now he has abdicated his responsibility, handed it over to Satan, and now all of humanity comes up under control in the headship of Satan rather than the headship of man. And you see this happening, and it happens in our own families, doesn't it? Just because men are careless. And here's, see, here's the issue. Men say, well, I didn't do anything. That's your problem. Your greatest sins are not what the sins you commit. Your greatest sins are the sins of omission. It's not what you do, it's what you fail to do. 
And you could grow up and see, see your kids and see your family and see everything broken down and messed up. And you say, well, I didn't do anything. That's exactly the point. You didn't do anything. You didn't lead. You let it go. You let her run the show. You let, and a woman is desiring. Look, women lead, son. They do. They're creatively. When we talk about men and women, we are not saying that men are superior and women are inferior. They are co-image bearers. Equal co-image bearers before God. In the Scripture, when it says that God made Eve and He made him a helpmeet, right in the King James Version, if you look at the Hebrew language, it literally means a power-facing opposite. It means that when God created man, He saw him as unfulfilled and incomplete, so He made a power-facing opposite that would be a reflection of God as He was a reflection of God. And in the end, the man and the woman would be able to fulfill their responsibilities as co-image bearers of God when they came together in a holy union. That was His design. So we're not, look, we're not saying, no, women, you need to be subservient. We're saying you need to fulfill your role. But guess what? The problem right now is not so much the women fulfilling their role. It's the men not fulfilling their role. They're abdicating their responsibilities throughout our nation, throughout our society. And we see society breaking down because of it. Now, when he does this, the first question in all of Scripture that God asks Adam, what does he say? Now, when Eve, Eve, the Bible even says that Eve was the one that was deceived. That's what it says. She was the one that was deceived. But when God shows up, He does not call Eve out first, does He? When He shows up in Genesis 3-9, the question He says in Genesis 3-9, He asks to the man, He called out to Adam and said, Where are you? Are you cleaning your rifle, son? Are you you playing video games in the basement? Like, what, what are you doing? And He's calling out to him, asking him, Where are you? Where are you? And here's the question to men right now. Where are you not engaged? Where are you not praying for your family? Where are you not leading when you need leadership? The thing, the thing that I've recognized, I can't tell you how many times Andrea has said when it comes to decisions we're making about Naomi just in the past two months or, or, or decisions we're making about our family or our life or our future, she says, I need help. What am I doing? I'm sitting over like, I got stuff to do. And she's saying, no, you got to help me with this. Help me make decisions. Be the leader in this home. I don't want to make all the decisions for everything that we're doing. And, and I hear the voice of God in that. I hear the voice of God in that as a man. I have to step up. I have to, I have to take that leadership role. I have to take that position. And see, so you got to ask yourself, where, what are you not saying? What are you not doing? What are you not leading? See, this is covenantal thinking when we begin to, as men, take responsibility for the things that God has entrusted to our care. Even in Job 1.5, if you read Job, Job chapter 1, verse 5, this is covenantal thinking because here's what you got to understand. The woman is still responsible for her actions. The children are still responsible for her, their actions because sometimes what you'll have is you'll have a controlling husband And the controlling husband then will take away the responsibilities of the woman and the children and they'll just be irresponsible. And that's that's no good. Women, you're responsible for your actions. You can't commit adultery on your husband and say, well, he's the head of the household. You can't do that. That's on you, right? But see, what he says, it says that his children were feasting. They were doing burnt offerings. And it says that... uh, it said that Job would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them for all. And Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And Job did this regularly. In other words, his children were out partying one night. He says, you know what, I'm going to take responsibility for my children. Obviously, they're responsible for their actions, but I'm in covenant with my children. They're my children. That means I'm going to bring them before God. I'm going to plead the blood of Jesus over my children. Just in case they did sin, I'm going to cover them in prayer. 
Somebody amen me. And here's the thing. I'm going to preach this. And, and the Lord shared with me. He said, Clay, you're going to preach this. And some men are going to be str- kind of smitten in the heart and feel like a failure. And God says it ain't over yet. You still got an opportunity to lead your children. If you feel like your children have went wayward and you failed your children, God says, no, the time is not up yet. You can still stand in the gap for your children. You can still reach out in love and God's grace is able to fill that hole. Save your children. Bring your family back into place. It's never too late for God to turn things around. Man, we all need the grace of God. I do not have that. The reason I'm preaching this is out of a desperate need. I laid on the floor last night crying, saying, God, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know how I'm going to lead a church. I don't know how I'm going to lead a family. I don't know how I'm going to lead my, lead my wife. I need your help. That's the place that men have to come to, this place of desperation where they say, Lord, we need your help. Number two, I'm, I'm going to move quicker now as we move into this. Amen. Got seven points. We're on point number two. We've been here an hour, Clay. Number two, be faithful and raise godly children. See, God's goal for your family is to raise godly offspring. Now, in Malachi chapter 2, I've got to read this to you here in just a second, but in Malachi chapter 2, if you read the story, there's these men, and they've married the, the God's men, men who are serving the Lord in the temple, even priests, and they marry with other nations, and they marry these women who are godless women. They serve other idols, they serve other, other gods, and literally what it pretty much says is, you know the reason they married them? Because they were hot. I get it, y'all. I mean, obviously God's given us attraction, but when you marry a godless man or a godless woman because they are hot, what you need to understand is hell is also hot. Amen. And I don't want to sign up for either. You've made a poor decision. You're not just looking for a good time. You're looking for a good legacy. When you start to pick out a man, when you start to pick out a woman, you've got to see how they treat you you got to see if God's really first in their life. you got to see if they honor you and respect you. Because if they're putting you before God, you're going to have a hard time in your relationship. And what we have in most relationships, young relationships, man, we got a lot of good young people here, and I believe, I believe they're filled with the Spirit of God. I'm thankful for them because we need good young role models and relationships and stuff like that. But you always got to be reminded, some of you, some of you little youngsters do. I know what it's like to be 20. And be freaking out. You know what I'm saying? Like, I know what it's like. Oh, you think you're one track minded. You ain't thinking about 10 years down the road. You're thinking about right now. And they were thinking about it. And they married these hot women. And then they get all upset. And they start to divorce these women because they have children with them. They can't agree on anything. And you know what they say in their mind? They say, you know what? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to divorce these women, get some godly women and start over. Does that not happen in our society today? It's like, because we forget the covenant, what we do is we say, well, I'll just be in a contract with you. You know, honey, I'm going to marry you, but I'm going to give you a performance review every two years. And if you're not lining up, what I'm going to do is I'm going to dump you and I'm going to get a newer, hotter version. (laughs) This is not how our society thinks. This is not how God thinks. And again, I know and I understand that people have broken marriages, they have broken families. Once again, this is not a message of condemnation. You can be healed, you can be restored. People can, we've all made bad decisions. But once we make those decisions, we come up under the forgiveness and the redemption of God. We have our shame wiped away and we let God restart and reset the ways that we go about things. We can't do what we did in the past. We can't make the same decisions that we did in the past when God comes into our life. And He says these things to us out of love. Here's what Malachi 2, verse 13 through 15 says. See, these guys were marrying these women. 
Then they were divorcing them because things were going bad. And he says, and this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. So they're crying at the altar, basically saying, they're coming to church and saying, Lord, everything's bad. Everything's a mess. Why are things not good in my life and in my home? This is literally what's going on. And he says, but you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Like I said, you're not in a contract with your wife. You're in a covenant. And young men, you should know that. Guess what? You ain't married her yet. You ain't in covenant yet. That means you don't get to have sex with her yet. Somebody say, amen, pastor, right? Get weird this morning. Let's talk about sex in the church house. This is one of the biggest issues of our generation, and we like to skip it over. Because the reason families break down is because we don't have, have a healthy view of what sex actually should be in a marriage. It is a gift given to you by God in the covenant of marriage. And then when it happens, so you create babies like that. Amen. <laughs> but you're not in a contract. You're in a covenant. Verse 15, he says, Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? What is God seeking in your marriage? Notice this. This is very important. Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. He says he makes you one. Do you know that actually when you, when you, when you do have sex with your wife, there is chemicals released in your body that cause you to bond. When you have a child, they carry both of your genetics and both of them, oftentimes one will look more like the other, but they carry both your genetics. And sometimes what you actually see in years to come, it's actually scientific. Even the husband and the wife begin to look like one another. You ever notice that? Because they have become one. Something physiologically has taken place in that union. And there's a bonding that takes place. He makes them one. He gives them a measure of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, the reason I've done this is because I want godly offspring. There's a lot of men out there that say, you know what? I just want to serve the Lord. I don't want to have babies. I used to feel this way. I was like, you know what? If I have babies, it's going to take away from me serving the Lord. And the Lord, I feel like, spoke to my heart one time and said, Clay, do you realize that if you would just raise godly children, you'd have a far more effective ministry? Because you need to start thinking long term. You need to start thinking that you can raise godly children. That, that's my third point. You've got to think generationally and leave an inheritance. See, if we're talking about raising godly offspring, godly children, here's the question that I would ask. You really can't tell me right now that sports are not more important than your child's relationship with Jesus for a lot of you. Let's be honest this morning. Is your child's relationship with Jesus more important or is their popularity more important? Is your child's relationship with you? Let me ask you this. Are you going to allow the state, the, the, the school system, to raise your children and teach your children about sex in this generation? Or are you going to take the burden of that responsibility and teach them the ways of God? Because I'm telling you, if, the, if, if Netflix and the state raises your children, they're going to be heathens. But we've abdicated our responsibility. We've said that's the school's job. We'll send them to school. Let me tell you, you leave it to them and they will raise heathen, godless people. And that's why at an alarming rate, children are turning away from the church. And we've been given a responsibility right here to make sure. See, and somebody said, well, you know what? We need a good youth program. We do need a good youth program. But can I tell you this? Even your best youth programs get those kids two hours a week. 
You get them every day. When you wake up, you're in their face. When, when, when you move, when you, every day. They, it doesn't just need to be the fact that you bring them to the house of God, but in your own house, you create an atmosphere for God to dwell there. The teaching goes forth not just on Sunday, but it goes forth on Monday night when you meet up and eat dinner with your family. Men have got to move into this space if they're going to live for a true legacy. Now, we got to think generationally and leave an inheritance. What does godly offspring look like? Jonathan Edwards was one of the greatest theologians in American history. And history records that he would get up every morning and he would pray for five generations of his family. He would pray for generations that were not even born yet. And here's what history records, right? He had 11 children himself... And of all of his descendants, they were able to actually trace 300 preachers, 295 college graduates, 100 missionaries, 100 lawyers, 80 held public office. There was one vice president. His name was Aaron Burr. There was 13 U.S. senators. There was one state governor. There was three big city mayors, 75 military officers, 65 college professors, 13 college presidents, and 56 physicians, one dean of a medical school, and 30 judges. This man wasn't just living for him. He wasn't just looking to make himself successful. He said, I want to make an impact that goes on throughout the generations. There's a song that we're going to sing to close service. And he says, may his favor be upon you and a thousand generations. God thinks generationally. You and I cannot afford... I can't get up here and say, Lord, I want my ministry to flourish. No, I want my grandchildren's ministry to flourish. I want what we make right here in this generation, in this hour, to be long-lasting enough that when you and I are dead and gone, our grandchildren can meet right here in this same area and say, you know what, they planted something in our hearts and we've not turned from it and look what we have now. Look what we have now. Look at the blessing that we're under now because they weren't, they weren't going to back down from the truth. They were going to worship God. They were going to stand for godly principles and because of that we saw a move of God. We saw the world around us transformed. Right? This is what God calls us into. And see, sociologists will talk about the law of five generations. That means either for good or for bad, you will impact five generations. And you can't have the idea that say, well, I didn't do anything. Yeah, well, guess what? You not doing anything has an impact too. And you will impact five generations one way or the other. And so we've got a decision to make. What legacy are we going to leave? What will we deposit into the next generation? What's our legacy going to be? What is my kid going to say about me? Proverbs 13.22 says a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Foolish thinking and selfish thinking thinks, it thinks, you know what, how do I make myself successful and how do I spend all my money and all my stuff now to have as much fun as I can in this moment. But wisdom says how far can I extend all, everything that I have into the future so I don't just make myself successful but I make my grandchildren successful. And listen, I've got men in this church that I look up to that I've seen. This is, this is their line of thinking. They're thinking generationally. And see, we're leaving not just an inheritance of money or finances, but we're leaving an inheritance of faith. We're leaving an inheritance of fidelity, of being faithful to our wives, of loving our wives. And a lot of people, the thing that I hear over and over again right now is, you know what, it's just a hard thing to raise kids in this generation. Let me tell you something. You have got to believe that greater is He who is in you than he who is in this world. If this world is getting swallowed up by darkness, we've got the Spirit of God on the inside of us. 
When we read the Scripture in the Old Testament, the things that we don't think about is how evil Haman was in the book of Esther. What we think about is a young woman who said, you know what, I've been called for such a time as this. And she stood in the gap and prayed for a generation and brought deliverance because of it. What we don't think about often when we read the book of Daniel is the wickedness of the leaders and the empire rulers who enslaved person after person after person. But we think about Daniel's unceasing devotion to prayer and godliness so that he had such an impact in his generation that he turned three godless monarchs back to the one true God. In other words, we are raising kids that because we have the Spirit of God, we have got to believe that we can raise them in such a way that they'll be so full of God that they will impact this world rather than the world impacting them. It's possible. And if it's not possible, if we believe that it's not possible, then we don't really believe what Scripture's telling us. Because God's given us a mandate. He's given us an invitation. He says, you have the opportunity to raise children that will impact the next generation. They will be the Elijahs. They will be the Daniels of our day. I'm not fearful about what's going to come on this world because, listen, anything that comes, we're going we're to raise people that are willing to give their life for the gospel. That's the way my kids are going to live. Persecution may come. This world may go half crazy. The United States of America may fall, but we're going to continue to serve God. And if we have to lay down our lives to speak the name of Jesus, that's what we're going to stand for. And that's the things that we got to prepare our hearts for and prepare our children for because these things are coming. These things are coming into our world. Number four, build history with God and tell your children the story. One of the primary ways that the Jewish people educated their children was that they would build a history with God, they would have experiences with God, and then they would be intentional about setting up memorials and markers as teaching opportunities. Let me run through some verses. Exodus 12, 26, he says, And it shall be when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service that you shall say? And he tells them, Why are you doing Why do we go to church, Daddy? Why is that important? Why do we got to go every Sunday? Why, why do we need to do it? Why do we read the Bible at night? How come you pray over us? When they ask you this, you shall say, You're already prepared. You're already ready. You've thought through the training of your child. They, are, they, they planned it. Exodus 13, 8. And you shall tell your son in that day saying, this is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. Let me tell you why this happens. Because there was a time when your daddy didn't know the Lord. There was a time when your daddy was, was a drunk and a crazy person and Jesus reached down and grabbed him and brought him up out of his bondage. And this is the reason we live this way because God stepped in and saved our family. Tell them the story about what Jesus has done in your life. Exodus 13, 14. So it shall be when your son asks you in time to come saying, What is this that you shall say to him by the strength of the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and out of the house of bondage? Let me tell you something. Your children are going to ask you questions. They're going to go to school. They're asking us questions right now. I got people, young people asking me some of the craziest questions because when they're involved, can you imagine all the things that they're hearing and seeing in the media today? And what we have to do is we, have to, we can't say, well, that's, 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 a little bit, that's a little bit uncomfortable. Let me tell you something. If you don't like confrontation and you like discomfort, you're going to let Satan come in and rule your children. You've got to be uncom- willing to get uncomfortable and you've got to be willing to be confrontational. Joshua 4, 6 says, this, this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come saying, what do these stones mean to you? They're going to ask you, what does this mean to you? Why is so-and-so? Why is little Susie saying this at school? Justin tells me stories all the time about when Ivory, just a little girl, goes to school and the little kid's saying things that you cannot imagine. She's this tall. And you know what, though? She has a response. She says, no, that ain't the way that it is. This is the way God says it is. 
And she says that because she's ready, because they've instilled in her what God has to say about the matter. And she already knows it, and she's just this big. She understands. It's in her heart. See, and that's, that, that's the next thing. We've got to tell our children the story of what God's done in our life. But number five, we've got to teach our children and represent God's nature to them. Ephesians 6, 4 says, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. This word training is padilla. How many, how many Star Wars fans we've got? Anybody? A couple? Young Padawan, right? This is where the word comes from, praise God. The training... If you're a Padawan, you are, you're a Jedi in training, right? But what this means, what the word literally means is you have a strategic plan laid out that you're teaching your children these things because you have an end goal in mind. And he says, raise them up in the training and the admonition. The admonition literally is this word nuthesia, and it's geared toward what you teach them to think. What should they be thinking about certain, certain things? How should they be thinking about these? And we're developing their reasoning through warning, through admonishing, and through correcting and encouraging in the ways of the Lord. Richard and I, Richard asked me, he said, you know any good books on parenting? I said, not really, but I got a lot of experience. <laughs> I'm glad y'all can joke with me this morning. But I had one book and I suggested it to him before I read it, which I'm reading it now because he sent me this quote. And I want to read this quote to you. Here's what Paul David Tripp says in his book, Parenting. He says, the authority that you have is ambassadorial authority. In other words, he's saying, you're actually parenting on God's behalf. You're not a parent left to yourself. You're taking care of your children in place of God. And he says, this means that every time you exercise authority in the lives of your children, you are the look of God's face, you are the touch of His hand, and you are the tone of His voice. You must never exercise authority in an angry, impatient way. You must never exercise authority in an abusive way. You must never exercise authority in a selfish way. Why? Because you have been put into your position as a parent to display before your children how beautiful, wise, patient, guiding, protective, rescuing, and forgiving God's authority is. I read that. I've only been parenting two months. I got so convicted I almost threw up. I thought, man, I've been holding this baby, and I've got to be honest with you, there are times that I've gotten a little bit frustrated. I mean, you, you blow out one diaper, it's all over the cushion. And then as you're changing it, she spits up like five full ounces of the bottle you just fed her. You feel like a massive failure. You feel like you're damaging this child. I'm like, she'll never be right after this. This is... And, I, and you love her so much, but you, you know, I, I'm just figuring this out. I know a lot of y'all been parents for a long time. Listen, if we'd had it our way, we, I'd have been parent for six years now, but, you know, th things happen, things don't, you know, but we got a baby, thank God. And, and you, we're figuring this thing out, aren't we? We're figuring this thing out. But see, we're to teach our children, and this is what he says. He says, you're the look of God's face. You're the touch of God's hand. And if you look at it from that perspective, man, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit starts to get involved. When I wake up at 3 a.m., I'm thinking, God, you're with me right now. You're going you're to help me parent this baby. You're going to help me feed her in such a way that she does not spit up. <laughs> and if this diapy is blown out, you're going to give me the wisdom in how to clean it without getting it on the couch cushion. Number six. I got two more and I'm done. Number six. Pray for and bless your children. Do you know that parents have power over their children's future? The, the Old Testament teaches more specifically that a father has the power to either bless or curse their children. And you see it over and over again. You see that Isaac blesses Jacob in the place of who he was supposed to bless, Esau. And because he speaks the blessing over Jacob, because there's power in his words, that blessing is transferred to him. 
Jacob blesses all of his 12 sons and they become the nation of Israel. And the words that he speaks over each of his sons ultimately are what comes to pass. He spoke a blessing over his son Judah and told him that through him the scepter would come. In other words, he was saying Christ is coming through you. Do you know what happened? Christ came through him because he spoke the blessing over his child. And my point being is that you've got to pay attention to what you're speaking over your wife. You've got to pay attention to what you're speaking over your children because there's life and death in the power of your tongue. And you have the power to either bless them or curse them. And you need to be speaking the blessing over your child because there's power in it. Let me give you a few little verses of promises of God that we can not only pray, but we can speak over our children. De- Deuteronomy 36. It says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, that you may live. So he's not just going to do something in your heart. He's going to do something in your children's hearts. Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go. And even when he's old, he will not depart from it. Let me tell you something. I believe there's a lot of parents, man, they have, because they, here's, you see it happen all the time. I know some of the best parents, good parents, who for whatever reason, man, their children go astray. It happens, doesn't it? And that the blame is not to rest solely on the parent because the child has a responsibility as well, right? There's a responsibility on the child's part. But at the same time, I believe that when a parent trains a child in the proper way, that even if they depart, that in the end, ultimately, they're going to come back. And you can pray and you can believe that God's going to do something in their hearts and bring them back to the Lord. I've seen it a million times. Isaiah 49, 25, for I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. That's a promise for your children. Isaiah 54, 13, all your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. Amen. Pray that over your children. My children, I'm not just going to teach my kids about the Lord. The Lord is going to teach my kids. It's a different thing. And great shall be the peace of my children. Psalm 112 2, His descendants will be mighty on earth and the generation of the upright will be blessed. That means that your children are not just going to be normal. Your ch- that word mighty, it's a very special term throughout Scripture for people who rose up in power and led great deliverances and great salvations to the people of God. It means that your children are going to raise up and make an impact. Psalm 127.4, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. That means that you're going to raise your children and they're going to be like arrows shot into the heart of the enemy when they get older. I'm going to raise little young Naomi with the help of God's grace. And when she raises up and she gets to be 20, 21 years old, son, she is going to slay demons. She's going to be like an arrow shot into the heart of the enemy. And the love of God that comes out of her heart is just going to be overflowing. I, I sit and I pray over in the middle of the night. And as I'm praying, the Lord gives me things to pray. He says, he says to me, Clay, pray over her that she's going to be. She, I, I, just, I just feel like I believe that she's going to transform the world because of the love of God that's in her heart. That she's going to know love that transcends certain things. And people say, well, you know, she, she's adopted, Clay. I mean, there are going to be struggles. Absolutely. Everybody's got struggles, don't they? But God transcends all of our struggles. His power is greater than the things that we go through, than the struggles that we have. And lastly, Isaiah 59, 21. As for me, this is my covenant with them. This is God's covenant with you, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. You ever read the Bible? And you thought, man, why all these genealogies in here? This is boring. You ever read through the Bible and one year you get to the genealogies, you just skip the page. Like, I ain't reading all them names. Do you think God put that in there just because he's like, you know what? I need to make the book about this big 
So we're going to put some extra pages in there. Put some family lineages in there. No, he did it because he's trying to give you his heart. He's trying to get you to think generationally. You have an impact. You have a lineage. Somebody's coming after you. And what you do right now with your life is going to impact the future generations, even unto a thousand generations, the scripture says. You can leave a lasting impact. You can live for a legacy. We can do this. God's given us this mandate. He's given us this challenge. Here's my last point because we all need it. Number seven is you've got to rely on God and you've got to receive His grace. Because I know when I stood up here today, I thought to myself, Lord, I'm preaching about something that I know very little about. I've got no earned authority. I just have become a father. I've only been married about six years. I mean, I'm struggling through this thing myself. But I tell you what, if we learn right now to rely on God, to receive His Word and to receive His grace, no matter how much we've messed up, no matter how many times we've failed, God says, I can put this thing back on track. I can save your soul and I can save your children and I can put things back on track and I can turn your family around and you can start planting a new garden today you can uproot some weeds and you can start planting good seed right now is the time you can make a change amen I want you to bow your heads with me now there's a lot of people in here this morning and I always just like to give people an opportunity you know there's no prayer that actually saves you but there's something that happens in the faith in the heart of someone whenever they exercise faith because they sense the Spirit of God drawing them to relinquish control and say, Jesus, I want to live for you and I want to receive your salvation. And if you're here this morning, you say, I sense that. I sense God tugging on my heart and I need to give my life to Jesus. I want to be saved. I want you to just throw your hand up real high right now. Just me and you and the Lord will see it. Anybody in here? Anybody in here say, that's me. I see one. Anybody else? Just let it be known. This is I'm ready. I'm ready to follow Jesus. Got one. Praise God. And I want, you, I want you to pray this morning. But for the rest of us, especially as we think about our homes, our household, our children, where's God calling us to lead? Where's God calling us to step out in faith? And so, Father, right now we just pray that your Holy Spirit would move in each heart and that we would receive your grace because, God, we need help. But I really sense right now, Father, in the Spirit, that for this church family especially and for our community, God, you're raising up men and women of God that are going to treat their household the way, God, that you want them to, God, that are going to lead their homes and raise their kids in the training and admonition of the Lord so that their kids are going to know God and their home is going to be a place of your presence, God, a a place where your word is valued, God. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us the grace to move forward. And for each family right now, Lord, for people that are struggling with their kids maybe or they feel like they've messed up and they've made too many mistakes, God, right now you're able to grant forgiveness. You're able to take away the shame. You're able to restore all things. You're a God of redemption. So we pray for those families right now, God, that are under the weight of shame and under the weight of brokenness and wondering if anything will ever get lined out, God. We believe by your word that right now you're beginning to move in those families. Lord, we pray for the mothers that have have been without people, that just need strength to lead their children well the way that they have been all this time, God, because you're a father to the fatherless. And so, Lord, what we're asking for right now is we're asking you to pour your spirit out into our families and into our homes, to heal our marriages, Lord God, to bless our children, God, to fill our children with your Holy Spirit, God. 
and to bring salvation to them, God. They need to know you, Lord. They don't need to just hear about you out of our mouths, but they need to know you in their hearts, Lord. And so we pray that this morning for this young man, God, that lifted his hand. I pray, God, that you'd stretch out to him. You'd save his soul, Father, that he would confess you as Lord and God relinquish all control to you, God. We love you. We thank you for what you're doing. Lord, we just want to worship you. One last time here together today, God, and lift our hands and praise you. Once you stand to your feet, just respond to the Lord.